And so we're gonna pull out our Bibles this morning. Will you do that? Pull out your Bible, open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. There are ushers here, a slightly younger version of our normal ushers, and they'd love to get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we want you to have the written word in front of you to feel the pages between your fingertips and to know that we are now entering into a time where we're gonna hear from God. And as you get ready, as you're turning, here is what I need you to know in order to be prepared to study the word together this morning. An idol is anything that your heart craves more than God. I want you to just... Chew on that for a second. Just kind of sit in that a little bit. In fact, I'm going to put that statement on the screen because it's going to serve as kind of the driving headline of our entire time together. Will you write this down? And I'm going to break it down for you just a little bit here. Every single word in this sentence has been carefully chosen. An idol is anything that your heart craves more than God, okay? So let me unpack just a couple of these words. The word anything, an idol can be anything. One of the mistakes we make when we read about idolatry in the Bible is that we we think it's about images or little statues or little fertility figurines that the people made. And that was a part of idol worship in the Old Testament. But the Bible is much more sophisticated than that. And the Bible wants us to realize what we're going to see today is that an idol can be anything. An idol can be a good thing. If I take a good thing in my life and I elevate it to an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol kind of a thing, right? My very first car that I got was a jet black Chevy S10 1989 with alloy wheels and a chrome bumper. It was primo, okay? I was 17 years old, and my mother, who's actually here in the service, God bless her, give my mother a round of applause, she's wonderful. I will not point her out, she would kill me. She bought me this truck, I loved this truck. It was rear-wheel drive, four-cylinder. It was gutless, but it was beautiful, okay? And I would wash this truck every week. I would polish that bumper. It was so beautiful. I would wash those wheels, and then I would drive into the parking lot of Sprague High School in Salem, Oregon, with the windows down, the Duran Duran blasting out of the cassette tape with the wind blowing through my mullet. It was the 80s. Picture it, okay? (laughs) And there I was, and I knew the moment I had elevated a good thing to an ultimate thing when just a couple of months after buying this truck on a day kind of like today where it was a little snowy, I hit some black ice, did a 180, and put that pristine bumper in the ditch, and there was just a little dent on there, and I was like, oh, my heart was devastated, and I knew. I'd created an idol, right? An idol can be anything. It could be a truck. It could be a relationship. It could be money, it could be prestige, it could be sex, it could be success. 
You take anything, even a good thing, and you elevate it to an ultimate thing, and now you have an idol. And the second word I want you to notice is the word heart, because this is a heart thing. Now, I don't have to convince you. You know this already. It's a heart thing. An idol, idolatry is not, it's not an ancient thing. It's not just a pagan thing. It's not even just a non-Christian thing. Idolatry is a human heart thing. Because the heart is the place where we crave and desire and long for and covet. And the actual physical act of idolatry, making something, it's just like fruit on a tree. It, it originates from somewhere deeper. It originates in the heart. You start to crave for something so much and you want to build your whole life around this thing, even if it's a good thing. Now suddenly you've created an idol. I knew a, I knew a man who craved success in his life. And even though he was unbelievably successful, everyone who knew this person thought, that's one of the most successful people I've met. It was never enough for him. He constantly craved more. And he constantly craved more. And eventually, because of his craving, he started doing some things that weren't totally above board, cutting some corners, making compromises in his ethic started to sacrifice too much and neglect his family. And pretty soon he lost his wife, his family, his career. He lost everything, right? It's a hard thing. But that brings us, of course, to the most important thing. An idol is anything your heart craves more than God. Now, this is the key. This is what makes idolatry dangerous. This is what makes idolatry a grave concern for a Christian. This is where we want to pause and say, Lord, I need, I need to hear from you this morning. I need you to help me evaluate my heart this morning. Idolatry is about disordered loves. It's when I, I, I switch stuff around, I invert things, and I take something that might be good, but I love it more than I should. Idolatry means loving more than God, what ought to be loved less God. It means loving too much what ought to be loved less. Anything that absorbs you, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, anything that takes God's place in giving you fulfillment, significance, satisfaction, meaning, purpose. If, if that's happening, you have God and I idol. And now you understand why Isaiah is not a fan of idols. He's not a fan. Okay. And if you've been reading, I hope you have, I, I challenged you to read these chapters, Isaiah 40 through 53. One of the things you'll notice is every time that Isaiah turns to the subject of idolatry, his tone changes a little bit. He gets a little bit intense. He's not a fan. And the reason he's not a fan is because Isaiah wants us to get all of our satisfaction from God as we behold him, our series, Behold your God, Isaiah knows. That's the only place you're going to get satisfaction. You behold God in all of his glory and you will be satisfied. And Isaiah knows if you're not satisfied in God, it could be because idols are clogging the inflow of God's glory. And God loves us. So he says, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to help you with this. We read it with me. Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 21. And we'll read to the end of the chapter in a minute. Right now, I'm just going to read four verses. Read along on the printed page. I'll read out loud. You read in your head, okay? 
Here we go. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm or do anything, right? Do good, do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now, one of the things you notice right away is, did you notice the change of tone? Does it feel a little bit more intense? Did you hear that? It's like God has taken off the gloves. Why would God do that? Why would God suddenly be maybe go on the offensive? I think it's because it really matters to God. And the, the setting of this chapter is a courtroom. Did you see that? The setting is a courtroom, and, and God has challenged the idols to a judicial debate, like in a courtroom. It's God versus the idols, and he dares them. He says, make your case. Prove that there's something more going on behind the scene. Prove that there's actually something divine about you. So he says, verse 21, he says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. It's, a, it's like a duel. And God gives them their chance, and then later we'll read in a minute, God's going God's to make his case for divinity, right? It reminds me, uh, this duel, this back, it reminds me in the Old Testament, do you remember if you've been around the church when Elijah in 1 Kings 18, challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. Maybe you know this story. You could read it later, 1 Kings 18. These prophets are claiming that Baal is the true God, and, I, and Elijah knows he, there's no such thing. There's one God, Yahweh, the creator God. So he challenges them. He says, okay, let's have a duel. And what we'll do is we'll both set up an altar, and we'll both call on our God to call down fire. And the prophets of Baal set up their altar and they're chanting and they're marching around it and they're praying and nothing happens, right? And then Elijah, he, he walks over and he dumps buckets of water. Do you remember this? He dumps water on his altar and then he stands really far back, right? And then he prays and it's literally incinerated and it's a duel, right? That's what's going on here. Now, let me ask you a question. Will you look... Do you, does God actually think that the idols are going to be able to make a case? No. God knows. There's nothing there. He already knows. This is what's happening. God is speaking to us. Okay? He's appealing to our common sense. He's saying, if you, if you just use your rational thinking, if you just slow down and think about it for just a minute, you'll realize there's nothing behind that, that thing that you're building your life around. It cannot possibly hold up to the weight that you've put on it. 
you just think about it for a minute. This is what Isaiah is doing. He knows idolatry typically flourishes in the fog of fuzzy thinking. We sort of just stumble around in life and we, maybe we don't even realize it and we've, we've gone after something, we've craved it, we've elevated it above God and suddenly it's the real thing that we're worshiping, the real thing we're following. And Isaiah says, if you just could slow down for a minute and really look at that thing, you go, that, I can't build my life on that, right? Now look, this... This morning, what I'm going to suggest and what Isaiah is going to suggest is this is, a, this is a Christian thing as well. This is, we're all prone to this. And because God loves us, he would, he would come and say, take a minute, slow down, look at your life, which I'm going to help you to do in, in just a minute. Think about this with me. And God helps us by, he puts forth this dare. He says, I want you to try to demonstrate that you're actually divine. And what is the dare? What would be the thing that an idol could do to prove that there's, there's actual power there? Well, look with me, verse 22. Let them, bring them, let them bring their idols and tell us what is to happen. So he says, predict the future, okay? But also not just predict the future, interpret the past, Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. Isaiah says, if you're a God, surely the one thing you could do is you could predict the future and you could interpret the past. That's what gods are able to do, or God. God who is outside of time and space is able to see perfectly all future things and see perfectly all past things and interpret them and explain them to us so that we get it. And Isaiah says, if you can't do that, then what are you? Yeah, right? Super important. Did you know that one of the ways that we evaluate a worldview is by its explanatory power? Okay, think about this for a minute. This is worldviews. Worldviews can be idols, a worldview is a, is a system of thought. A, a, it's a claim to have an explanation for all of reality. And a lot of worldviews that are out there are set up against Christianity. And a worldview is saying, I've got the power to explain to you ultimate meaning. Why are we here? The big questions. Why are we here? How did this all begin? What's the purpose of human life? What's going to happen in the future? And the way that we evaluate a worldview is we evaluate it based on how well does it explain our life here on earth. And if it doesn't have a good explanation, then we should reject the worldview, right? R.C. Sproul, who we lost this year, I don't know if you know the name R.C. Sproul. He was an amazing scholar and philosopher, and he, he, he passed away in December, an amazing Christian guy. He was in a debate one time with a man named Carl Sagan, I don't know if you heard of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was a famous cosmologist, astrophysicist. Um, he, was, um, he was an atheist. He was no fan of Christianity. And um, you might remember Carl Sagan, he wrote a mini-series called The Cosmos, which aired on PBS. Lots of people watched it, like hundreds of people, because it was on PBS. But anyway, so he wrote this thing. And, uh, and Carl Sagan, so Carl Sagan and R.C. Sproul were in this conversation, and Carl Sagan said, we no longer need God because scientific naturalism has given us an explanation of all this. 
So I don't need, God is insufficient. God doesn't explain anything. But scientific naturalism can explain all this. So now we know, here's Carl Sagan. Now we know we can go all the way back to the beginning, to like one nanosecond before this explosion where a singularity of energy and matter exploded into the universe that we, that we now know. And Carl Sagan said, we don't need God. This is the, he's talking about the Big Bang, right? Scientists call it the Big Bang. Christians call it, and God said, let there be light. But that's another sermon. So anyway, <laughs> Carl Sagan said, we can explain this. And here's what R.C. Sproul said. He said, okay, fine, but here's what I need you to do. As a scientist, take me back right before that nanosecond and explain to me as a scientist how did we get a singularity of matter and energy that exploded into the cosmos? You know, how do we go from nothing to something? And you know what Carl Sagan said? He said, I don't want to go there. <laughs> That's what he said, I don't want to go. And R.C. Sproul said, you have to go there. You ha- if, you, if, if you're saying you have an explanation for all this, you got to go there. This is what God's doing here. He's saying, you ha- if you cannot explain all this, then what are you? So he Isaiah pulls back the curtain and he allows us to see what's really going on in there. Now, God does have an explanation for all this. Did you see it? Look with me, verse 22. God says, verse 20, in the end of 22, he says that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. God is saying, he's, he's saying, Christians, stand back and, and, and evaluate what's happening and realize that a God, can, a God can explain these things. A God can do incredible, powerful, divine types of things. And if, and if an idol can't do that, why would you build your life on it? And yet we do. So look at verse 24. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. We just look at that word chooses for just a minute. So this is what's, this is what, this is where I'm headed. Isaiah knew for some reason in my time as a prophet, the people keep choosing idols. Why do they do this? Why do people keep choosing these things? And, they're, and sometimes they're good things, but why do they choose them and then crave them and elevate them to ultimate things? What is it about the human heart that consistently goes this route? Why do I constantly choose to crave creative things more than I ought? What's happening underneath the surface? What's at the root of this? We need to understand it, and to understand it, we're going to leave Isaiah just for a minute. Keep your finger there, and please go with me to the New Testament, to the most important passage in the Bible about idolatry and human sin, Romans chapter 1. Let me hear those pages turning. Come on now, make some noise. Here we go. Romans 1 is where we're going. Romans is amazing. Someday we're going to preach through Romans, I promise you. It'll take us 15 years, but we will do it, okay? We're going to do it. I do love Romans 1, but I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you something right now. When you read this, it's going to sound super intense. It's going to sound like Paul is like, 
almost taking jabs, but he's not. Paul's not being, he's not being petty. He's not being mean-spirited. What Paul's doing in this passage is he's just trying to be as clear with the truth as he could possibly be. He's trying to speak plainly so that we understand our hearts. And what Paul has done in the verses before verse 21, where we're going to read, Paul has said, here's what you need to know. Everyone knows that there's a God. Everyone knows that there's a God because God has made it so plain in the created world. There, everyone who looks into the created world sees undeniable evidence there's a creator God. This is the argument of Romans 1. But for some reason, people choose to not worship God, they choose to worship other things. Why would they do that? Well, that's what Paul's going to say next. So look with me, Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want to ask you, did you notice that the word that Paul repeats in this verse is the word exchanged. Did you see that? It's there in verse 22, 23, excuse me. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's idolatry, right? But then look down at verse 25. He basically says the same thing because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And what Paul's doing here is he's saying at the heart of sin, at the heart of idolatry is this exchange that people make. It's like we, we, we know God we, and, and God is clearly there, but we, we trade God in for something else, a created thing. And remember, it could be a really good thing, but there's something about the human heart that makes this exchange and it's universal, it's part of the sin nature, so that instead of worshiping and honoring and thanking God, we, 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 we exchange it we, and we build our whole lives around something else. And this is really important. And if Paul is right, which I 100% believe he is, here's what Paul is saying. Think about this with me for just a minute. The reason that people go after anything other than God is not because they're confused. It's not because there's not compelling intellectual evidence for a creator, it's because we want to go after that other thing. That's what we want. In my sin, I don't, I don't want to surrender to God. I don't want to follow. I don't want God lording over my life. I want to be in control. I want to call the shots. I want to run the show. I don't want to serve God, so I trade God in for something created, and I try to build my whole life around it. And Paul says, it, it doesn't work. It can't. It's a house of cards. It can never possibly hold the weight that you put on it. 
And the Christian reads that and says, yes, I'm so thankful that I've turned my life over to Christ and I'm following God, but I know that I'm constantly tempted to turn back to these things. It's like it's a part of the human sin nature, right? And so the question is, how can you know? How, how, Pastor, I, everything you're saying, it makes sense. I agree, it's there. But how do I know? How do I know what my idols would be? How could I discern them? I'm sure they're there. So how would I know? Well, I want to help you with that today. And the way I want to help you is I want to give you three questions today that I want you to write down. Now, there's no three points to this sermon, but you knew there would be a triad of something, right? Here it is. Three questions that you could use to discern your idols. I want you to write these down. Don't answer these today. Go home. Make this a part of your devotional time this week. Pray about this. Think about this. By the way, I'm indebted to Timothy Keller and his book, Counterfeit Gods, for some of these questions. Here's the first question you could ask to discern an idol. What do I most often daydream about? Like when I'm not even necessarily trying, I'm, I just sort of naturally slip into a thought process and I start daydreaming. What, what is it that I most often daydream about? You know, you know when you're driving down I-5 past that Powerball sign and the, and the millions of dollars keep going up, you know, you're thinking, hmm, $450 million. <laughs> right? You're a 20-year-old kid from Florida, won $450 million. Can you believe that? See, we're all daydreaming. Wow, what would that be like, right? <laughs> okay, what are you daydreaming about? You're, 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 you're thinking, and maybe it's like there's this moment of glory where something awesome happens. You're like, yes. And then, well, wait a minute, why would I want that, right? And you just start thinking about it. You could, you could ask that question. But that might not help you. So here's another question that you could ask. What consumes my most precious resources? My time, my money, my energy, my creativity. Like, where, where's the best of it going to on a consistent basis? And, and then, you could, then you could start to evaluate that thing and, and ask the question, is, has that become too important? Has my heart elevated that? Have I taken a good thing and elevated it to an ultimate thing? It's really good question to ask. Here's another one, and I, I like this one. What is the cause of my most uncontrollable emotions? You know? You know the, the kind of emotion, maybe you f it happens to you regularly, and, and then you stop and go, why, why does that emotion keep coming up in my life? Maybe it's fear. You just constantly have this uncontrollable fear. Well, get down in there. Get underneath the skin and find what's causing that. Or maybe it's sadness, or maybe it's frustration or anger. And you could, you could sort of do a little diagnosis. Yesterday I went running. I go running sometimes on Saturdays to clear my head for Sunday, and I was running. And I had one of those experiences where as I was running, it was sort of a stream of consciousness, and my mind kind of wandered. And first I was thinking about the lottery and then I, I wandered to other things. No, I'm kidding. And I, what happened was it, there was no, it was just sort of a random stream of consciousness thought process. But what, what happened was I came to a point where I was running where I realized I'm really frustrated right now. 
And I knew it because I was running faster than normal, you know, and my knuckles had gotten white. I was like, I'm kind of angry. And then I thought, well, what is it? So I went back and I realized I had been rerunning in my head an email dialogue that I had had with someone, none of you, no one from the church, don't worry. But anyway, in that email dialogue, there was sort of a back and forth. And I realized I'm, I was really frustrated by that. And I, I thought the reason I was frustrated is because I felt super disrespected. And I was, I was ticked. And you know that moment where you, you think you, you're, you're like rerunning the, the conversation. You're like, I should have said this. That would have been a zinger. It's like George from Seinfeld, like, oh man, if I had said that, I was doing that whole thing, you know, and getting all fired up, knuckles are white. I'm running really fast. And I realized, oh my gosh, respect is too important for me. Now, this is me being honest with you. you. Maybe that's not you, okay? It's probably none of you. You guys don't care about respect. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's become too important for me. What's funny about it is that the Savior that I love and follow totally laid aside his rights to respect, and he, he, he became humiliated to die on a cross for my sins. Why would I care about respect? the Savior that I follow. So you could work through those questions. Now you're saying, great, but what, so I get, we can put those down now. Um, but so now you're saying, okay, I get, I get down there and I discover some things. Well, what do I do now? Now I know what it is. What should I do? Well, now we have to go back and finish Isaiah 41. So will you go back with me to Isaiah 41? I want to read out the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 25. Now it's um, God's turn to make his case. And here's what he says. He says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Now stop right there. Just keep your finger there. Here's what's happening. God is predicting a ruler who will come and conquer Babylon. And this actually happened. It's a historical event. In 539 BC, another empire rose up. So you had the Babylonians who had swept through Jerusalem, taken the Jews into captivity, and they were in captivity for 70 years. And then a new empire, the Persian Empire, swept up. And their king was named Cyrus, and Cyrus swept into Babylon from the north, and he conquered the Babylonians, and when he conquered the Babylonians, he let all of the Jewish people go home. He repatriated them back to Jerusalem, and God used Cyrus as his instrument. And actually, God tells us his name. So I, I won't read this now, but if you go, I'll put the verse up in chapter 44, verse 28. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. He's talking about you're going to need to go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus is going to be the one that I'm going to use. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 45, verse 1, God says, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. And you're probably thinking, Pastor, what? why are you making such a big deal about this? Can I tell you something? Will you, will you look at me? Isaiah 
wrote these chapters 160 years before Cyrus became the king of Persia. 160 years. He wrote this 90 years before the people of Israel even went into captivity. And not only did he write this, because God is the one and only God who can predict the future, Isaiah knew his name. His name will be Cyrus. And God knew this. And God says, so he puts out the challenge. Look at verse 26. Who declared this from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it. No one proclaimed this. None who heard your words. God's saying, I'm the only one who had the power to do this. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and to give Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. So imagine you're part of the people of Israel, and you're still in Jerusalem, and Isaiah has finished his book, and you read the book, and it's amazing, but you read and you say, Isaiah is talking about this captivity and the Babylonians are going to conquer us. And man, he's so, he's such a downer. Like Isaiah is just a buzzkill, right? And he's talking about this guy, Cyrus. Who is this guy? Well, then, so then imagine the Babylonians sweep in and you go into captivity. And now those same people pick up Isaiah and they're like, um, hey, Isaiah got that captivity part right. He was on to something. And then they're reading and they're like, and he talks about this guy Cyrus. Interesting. So imagine the people of Israel are in Babylon and they start to hear rumors. There's another empire that's, that's growing in power and they're conquering lands all around us. And, and then another rumor spreads. This Persian empire, they're on their way to Babylon. And imagine the people of Israel talking to each other and and, they, and one of them says, I've heard there's this king. He's an amazing warrior. He's an incredible military leader. Have you heard his name? Well, I, somebody said his name is Cyrus. And then you realize God predicted this. This is a God a person could build their world around, right? And nothing else. So look now at verse 29. Behold, back to the idols, they're a delusion. Their works are nothing. They're metal images. It's empty wind. Isaiah likes the word behold. And what happens when Isaiah uses the word behold? At the beginning of our series, Isaiah said, behold your God. He said, I'm gonna pull, I want to pull back the curtain so you can see anything that's blocking your view. And now Isaiah says, okay, I need you to behold something else. Here's the idols. I'm going to pull back the curtain so you can realize there's nothing there. It's no substance. It's like wind. It's ruach. It's the Hebrew word. It's just, it's a, it's a blowing of the wind. But then in the very next verse, we look at the beginning of chapter 42. Isaiah wants us to behold something else. We look at it in your Bible. He says, behold. Oh, there's someone else I want you to behold. I want you to behold my servant. Now that's where we're going next Sunday. So I'm not going to preach this verse I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wet your whistle with it a little bit. I'm gonna give you a little morsel. Here's what Isaiah is doing. I think, I think what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, you, "I need you to see how empty idolatry is, 
But here's the problem. I know that if, if you're going to get rid of an idol, you have to replace it with something better. Idols are like weeds. If you just pull it out, but you leave a hole there, another weed's going to grow in. So Isaiah, so Isaiah is saying, in order to replace that idol, you got to identify it, and you got to pull back the curtain, see how empty it is, and then get rid of it. And then the way you get rid of it is something better crowds his way in. And his name is the servant. And we want to know who he is. And that's where we're going in our series in Isaiah. We come back next Sunday because we've got to figure out who this servant is. Who is he? Who is he? Come back and find out next week. But today what we're going to do is we're going we're to enjoy him just a little bit at the Lord's Supper. And here's what I want you to do this morning. As you're sitting there praying and you're holding the bread in the cup, I want you to reflect on what you've heard. Maybe work through some of those questions and ask the question, is, there, is it possible that there's something in my life that I'm, I've, I've loved too much? I'm just, I've, I'm a little disordered. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back and lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to encourage you that the only way that that's going to really go away is if you see how absolutely breathtaking Jesus Christ is in his death and his resurrection for human sin. That's the only cure to idolatry. Will you bow your heads? Let me pray about that and we'll worship together. Lord, how we need your word. How we need the wisdom of it. Forgive us, God, if we've entertained ideas that your word is antiquated or old-fashioned or no longer no longer culturally relevant. But with great faith, could we reflect on what we've seen from your prophet Isaiah, how, how profound it is, how wise, how precise, how probing it is. We need it, Lord. I need it in my life. As a man who is tempted at times to go after created things. Would you, would you work in my heart this morning, I pray. We thank you for it, Lord. As we go now to the table, show us, may we behold your servant, the beauty, the power, the, the splendor of his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Captivate us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. 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 We're going to worship.